Tonight on Farage, after yesterday's tragedy, much has been said today, including the first debate on this subject in the House of Lords for several years. Are we any closer to a solution? The NHS and the growing health crisis, you may now have to travel hundreds of miles to have a routine operation. Is that reasonable? Is that fair? And joining me on Talking Pints, Bilal Fawaz, boxer, somebody who was trafficked to this country illegally as a minor and forced into modern-day slavery. I can't think of a more appropriate guest given what's going on with the criminal gangs in the English Channel. Well, after the tragic news yesterday, do you think that deterred the traffickers from sending boats across the channel today? No, not a bit of it. And indeed, the first migrant boat came in to Dover Harbour at 4.15 this morning. That was followed by another one. And then the weather deteriorated. And these are pictures from very early this morning in Dover Harbour. After that, the weather became too bad. And it's going to blow pretty hard for the next few days. But the next time it's calm... I would predict that nothing has changed. From the British press's point of view, it's all the blame game. It's all the fault of the French. Macron has got blood on his hands. But the truth of it is, the real reason people are coming isn't because the French are beastly, it's because the pull factors to the UK are just too strong. The way we treat and look after people who illegally come into our country is quite extraordinary. Four-star hotels, free dental care, free health care. Uh, you apply for asylum and indeed, of course, uh, you then uh, go through a process that can last for many years. And even if your application is refused, it's extremely unlikely you'll be removed. Add to that the vast size, sadly, of the illegal black market economy in Britain. And you can understand why people want to come here. Are we any closer to a solution? That's really what I want to ask you, the audience today. Well, I don't think so. You see, language says an awful lot. To me, the right term for those that are coming across the channel is illegal immigrants, because that's exactly what they are. But that's been considered by many to be impolite. So the word migrants has been in common use. And pretty Patel who herself, within the last few days, has been saying these are economic migrants, not refugees, has now changed her language completely in response to being challenged by an SNP member in the House of Commons today. And she says, my statement on yesterday's tragedy in the channel, after that, I've reached out again to France to offer cooperation on joint patrols to put a stop to these lethal journeys. Our Nationality and Borders Bill will address many of the pull factors for... People crossing the English Channel. So even from, even from our supposedly tough Home Office sec Secretary, no longer will she even use the word migrants. No, she's going to call them people. No doubt it'll be heroes quite soon. When you see a softening of language like that coming from Priti Patel, you know very little is going to happen. Very little is going to change. The offer to send... Uh, whether it's police officers or the British Army or the Royal Navy over to France to help the French stop these launches is going to be refused by the French on the grounds of sovereignty, although maybe worth noting that in the last century they did rather welcome uniformed British people, but hey. 
And even if we did send thousands of people, there will still be migrant boats that take off from those French beaches. All the while, the pull factors of coming to the UK are as high as they are, and the chances of deportation hovering close to zero. I don't think we're any closer to a solution at all. Let me know, please, what you think. Now, the House of Lords actually had a debate today on this, the first one since 2018, and it was sponsored and led by Baroness Kate Hoey, who joins us now. Kate, good evening. Well done for actually getting the House of Lords, which I've always thought to be hopelessly out of touch, to at least have a debate on this. Uh, can you just, just tell us briefly what you had to say and how the House responded? Well, I was pleased that I got this debate. Of course, I knew about it a couple of weeks ago, and then it came just after the terrible tragedy last night. So there was a, quite a sombre atmosphere and a very, I have to say, serious debate, as, as you tend to get in the House of Lords. There were clearly differences of opinion and differences of views. And my main aim today was, first of all, to make sure that the public knew that we were actually discussing this, because there's been too, too much secrecy over the past number of months, and the media hasn't really wanted to talk about it, apart from you know, GB News and perhaps slightly by Sky. And, and I just, today I was trying to talk really about the pool factor because it's all very well saying um, that, you know, things can be done in cooperation between the French and the British. And of course that was agreed that that should happen. Um, but, also, but unless we actually get away from the fact that people who are coming here uh, have been told very much in detail by the tr people traffickers. They know what's happening. They know how well they're going to be treated. And as they've said, even some of them being interviewed, you know, we want to come to the United Kingdom because we know we'll be better off there. <laughs> so that has to be addressed. And I think there's some of uh, the Lords who really don't want to accept that at all. No, and Kate, you also, I mean, I know it was a difficult day in some ways to have this debate, but a very pertinent one. You also raised the issue of national security and, and all of those poor unfortunate yes. people that died yesterday, none of them of course had any identity documents whatsoever, which is what we expect. Yeah. Just please yeah. give us, tell us what you said about security and how that was received. Yeah, well what I said was that we know that most of the people either haven't got documents for one reason or other, or they're told to destroy them. So it's actually very difficult to work out who or where they've come from. And I raised the question that, you know, it was ridiculous. I used the example of Lithuania, where they discovered actually looking at the people that had come in from Belarus, there were something like 24 who had direct links with um, ISIS. And I said, you know, on the scale of things then in, in, in this country, are we really saying that there's none of those people that are coming in illegally who might be here for other reasons and might have actually links with terrorist groups. I, I was then accused, of course, of accusing all um, illegal migrants of being terrorists, which, of course, was exactly uh. the kind of um, thing that's, you know, some of, you know, trying to divert it. And I have to say that the, um, the minister, um, Baroness Williams, did respond quite seriously to a number of my points. I mean, they've clearly got the message that they have not been doing enough. And I, I did actually, Nigel, um, raise the fact that, you know, if people had listened to some of the things you'd been said 18 months ago when yeah. you first went down there and took film, that things might have been different. Of course, that wasn't necessarily received with great um, no. plomb. 
I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> it's very much a Remainer house. Finally, Kate, and thank you for making time to come on with us this evening. Finally, what would you like to see as the next step? Well, I do think that it will just be shocking now if, if France refuses to the, our offer of police and, and, and the security to help with the, the monitoring of the beaches. We just can't have boats being allowed, you know, literally just to go off when, it, when the weather gets better again. But uh, they may not want to do that. They may not do that. And of course, as we know, that won't change things. I, 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 think, that, I think the government, I mean, the Nationality and Borders Bill coming through, which will, of course, get absolutely torn to pieces in the House of Lords, um, is, is a step forward because at least it's going to stop some of the huge numbers of appeals that asylum seekers who have failed can have. And of course, we'll stop some of the lawyers making lots and lots of money yeah, out of this. It's like an industry, a legal industry now. So I mentioned that today, which again didn't go down very well because there's a lot of lord, uh, law, legal lords, law lords in the lords. Well, Kate, listen, well done you for having this debate, for raising the tough issues, and you may find yourself in a very small minority in the House of Lords, but I think out of the country, a very large number of people will thank you for what you've said today. Thank you for joining us again here on GB News. Thank you. Well, isn't it nice that there are actually some politicians out there, and of course, Kate, lifelong Labour politician, but who cares what party she represents? People out there actually with the courage to stand up and fight for what they believe in. Now, our Home and Security Editor, Mark White, has been following the situation in Dover today and has sent in this report. Well, you could be forgiven for thinking that following the terrible tragedy in the English Channel yesterday, that there would be a pause in the number of migrants shoved out onto these small boats for the crossing across to the UK, but not a bit of it. At 4.15 this morning, our local producer was here at Dover Harbour, captured these images of yet more migrants coming ashore first from a border force cutter, about 10 migrants taken off that cutter. They had been intercepted in the middle of the English Channel. Then about an hour later, the Dover lifeboat arrived. It had between 40 and 50 migrants on board, again taken off a boat in the middle of the Channel. It is a never-ending flow of migrants coming across the Channel when the weather allows, even in these winter months. And it's something, of course, that the Home Secretary is grappling with as a matter of urgency now. I want to show you, actually, while we're here at Dover Harbour, you can see some of the Border Force personnel there. Uh, this is one of the jet skis. That's a new piece of equipment that Border Force have. They've been training on them in recent weeks because they will be using them as part of this turn back policy that the Home Secretary wants to see them adopt, where they will go up to small boats uh, and they will try and shepherd them, if you like, back out of British waters, back into French waters. But that's going to depend on the boat being sturdy enough and not full of women and children uh, so that they might be placed in some kind of danger. So it will be in rare circumstances, I think, that this will be used, but it's something that the Home Secretary wants to explore. She needs, she knows, to get a grip of this crisis. She has said to the French again today she is willing to put British personnel on the French beaches, something the French have already rejected. 
Now we're learning a bit more about the boat as well at the centre of this tragedy. It's been described by the French as a flimsy inflatable. Well, we understand it was a Chinese-built boat. We're showing you some pictures now of a model, the same model of boat towed into Dover Harbour. You can see it's a long, skinny boat, uh, grey in colour, but very flimsy. It is prone under direct sunlight to popping uh, because the seams on this uh, inflatable are so weak. It can't really take any weight. There were 30 people on board this vessel and we think that those seams just ruptured and it began deflating. And of course, those people were thrown into the water and drowned or died of hypothermia before the rescue services could get to them. Utterly tragic. Five people have now been arrested in connection with yesterday's tragedy. Well, great work from Mark White. And GB News has led the way on the whole channel migrant crisis. We've been talking about this for weeks when the other broadcasters and newspapers didn't even want to touch it. And we will go on leading and educating, I hope, people as to the extent of what is going on. Now, an announcement that the National Health Service will ask patients to move around the country to have fairly routine operations provided. Is this a sign that the NHS is beginning to break down or is it a perfectly reasonable and sensible allocation of resources to an NHS that is still recovering from the big job of dealing with the pandemic and how far could people be asked to travel? I've spoken to a few people about this and everyone seems to be rather confused. Well, perhaps to shed some light on this is Dr Paul Scott, GP and local medical committee chair for Northern Staffordshire. Paul, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good, e good evening, Nigel. So do we know yet just how far we might be asked to travel for, for example, an operation on an ingrown toenail? It, this hasn't cascaded down through the NHS yet. Um, people do travel for some specialised services already. You know, I've got patients who go to Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham. Occasionally one goes to London for really specialised stuff, and, and that's just accepted. I think the issue here will be for what procedures. Um, when I refer people now, I get a choice of the closest hospital and one's a bit further away. And, and it's remarkable how many people want to stay local. And yes. this is especially important when, they, when they're going to need to be followed up. Some things are one-off procedures and, and they're really clearly probably one-off procedures. And, and people will travel and, and that's fine. There's a real problem when something unforeseen happens and they need proper follow-up and you lose that ownership and connection. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of things that do need regular follow-up afterwards. So I know behind this isn't just the procedures, it's the there's an issue about the whole of our patients and how secondary care are working. Um, there's a hint that there's wanting a, a, a shift to cut those follow-ups. And, and as a GP, that, that gives me some concerns. We're, yeah, I mean, I can see that. I can see much, that. Um, I can see that because it's very disjointed. I mean, look, I get the point. You know, if you're sending somebody for something very, very specialist, they'll understand the need to travel. But the indications that we've got, and they are only indications, is that people could get shifted around for fairly routine procedures. Paul, is all of this a sign that the NHS 
just can't cope and that the 5.8 million backlog of operations that, frankly, we're just not going to make a dent in this over the course of the next year or two? I think we've still got COVID and COVID's taking up some capacity in secondary care. Um, in general practice, I think with, with the NHS, we've always been incredible value for money. You can have a good service, you can have a speedy service, and you, or you can have capacity. With the funding we've got and the staffing we've got, you can no longer have all three. So you could have a, a good service with enough volume, but it wouldn't be quick. And, and you could have a good but speedy service, but you wouldn't have the capacity. This applies, this absolutely applies in general practice. It's why we're getting pilloried for, for a thing that's outside our control. But it's also happening in the hospitals, and, and that's where we're getting the weights, and they're not meeting the ongoing capacity requirements. And we have got a big backlog, a big backlog from, okay. those, from that year of COVID quietness. Um, no, no it's a massive... COVID it's, it's a massive backlog. And, Paul, do you understand, and I know there are some people who have got very busy lives and travel to work and going to see a GP to get, for example, the renewal of a prescription is a bit of a nonsense, so a very quick Zoom consultation makes sense. I understand that. But do you understand the growing public anger about the lack of face-to-face -face consultations from GPs? Well, I know even even this week, in general practice across the country, we've gone back up to two thirds face to face. Good, um, and and the public will be will be getting that. To be honest, it doesn't. Apart from not really wanting to see acute COVID patients to infect the rest of my waiting room, it makes very little difference whether I see people face to face or um, by telephone or by video. And I'm, I'm happy to do all of them. And for for a significant number. The telephone or video works really well. You know, they can get their, their follow-up sorted by uh, their, their convenience, even from their own work. So that I don't think it's going to go away, and it, and it really ticks a lot of people's boxes. But the demand well, for face-to-face, -face, that's fine. It's just the capacity, speed, and we're not Amazon Prime. You know, we're not a, we are not a conveyor belt. And if people want good quality, they're either, we're either going to have to do something about the capacity or they're going to have to wait. Yeah, well, I think that actually that 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 final sentence sums up where we are, I think, with NHS provision in the country. Paul Scott, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. In a moment, we'll look across the pond. What is happening to Biden's poll ratings? Is Donald Trump now looking like favourite to win in 2024? Earlier, I asked you, after all that's been said over the last 24 hours, are we any closer to a solution to the migrant crisis? One viewer on Twitter says, all we are seeing at the moment is finger-pointing, the blame game. I couldn't agree with you more. Nick says to me, we all know the solution, but our government does not have the courage to do what needs to be done. It's as simple as that. Wayne says, a change of government in France might help. Well, the trouble that is, Wayne, the elections are still a good six months away. Sal says, it will never be sorted until someone with influence on either side of the channel says it as it is. And Scarlett says, it's easily stopped if France agree that they're all immediately to be returned there. They won't make the dangerous journey. We're a long way from that. Let's stick uh, with 
Let's stick with a What the Farage moment. You'd have thought, after what happened in the channel yesterday and the sensitivity of the negotiations that are going on between the British and the French, that the next story you would hope wouldn't be true, but it is. French fishermen will block ferries and UK-bound goods heading to the Channel Tunnel tomorrow in a further escalation in the row over post-Brexit fishing licences. I mean, it's unbelievable. Describing the action as a warning shot, the French National Fisheries Committee chairman, Gerard Romerty, said ferry traffic would be blocked at St. Marlowe, Wistrom, Calais ports, as well as freight going in to the Channel Tunnel. He said, we don't want handouts, we just want our licences back. The UK must abide by the post-Brexit deal. Well, I have to say, in response to this, Boris Johnson's spokesman says, we are disappointed by threats of protest activity. There are 103 French vessels that are able to fish up to six miles from the UK's shoreline. In return, there are fewer than a handful of British boats that can fish within six miles of France's shoreline, but that's not enough for them. They want more, and they want licences, even for boats that can show no historic record of having fished in British waters, which, given that logbooks have been in for years, means they're even admitting they were fishing illegally. I've no idea how big the disruption is going to be at the Channel Tunnel or at Calais tomorrow, but I would urge the government not to give in, please. Another What the Farage story, quite extraordinary, this one. Students at a Catholic university are petitioning to remove a heretical painting that, wait for it, depicts George Floyd... As Jesus. Yes, that is absolutely right. Mama by Kelly Lassimore shows Floyd being cradled by a maternal figure that evokes Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture of Mary and Jesus after the crucifixion. The painting is being displayed at the Catholic University in America in Washington and has provoked a backlash from some students. I should jolly well hope so too. The university defended the work. Yes, they did and said it represented a good faith attempt to include religious imagery on campus that reflects the universality of the Catholic Church. The university said in March it had unveiled the painting after its celebration of Black History Month the previous month. This is madness! You may deplore the way in which George Floyd died, but the man was a career criminal who even pointed a loaded gun into the stomach of a heavily pregnant woman, not somebody that should be lauded or held up as a hero, and certainly not somebody that should be used as a replacement for Jesus. And it shows you how some on the extreme left have frankly lost their marbles. Sticking with America, Joe Biden is not even 11 months into the presidency, and yet his personal poll ratings are slipping and slipping and slipping. He's down to a 36% approval rating. More interestingly, his deputy, Kamala Harris, who's rarely seen uh, by the American public, from what I can make out, her poll rating um, approval is down at 26%, which I understand to be the lowest of any vice president in modern times. And now another poll that has come out from one company suggests that in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and they're the five states that last year switched from having been Republican in 2016 
to being Democrat in 2020, polling suggesting that in those five states that Trump would beat Biden and interestingly, in some of those states would beat him by double digit figures. So what is going on? Just how much trouble are the Democrats in? Well, let's speak to a Democrat. Let's speak to Bob Mulholland, Democratic National Committee member and strategist in California. Very good of you to join us again, Bob, on GB News. Yeah, good evening. Uh, we're celebrating Thanksgiving over here. I can't uh, but, believe, uh, I can't believe you've made time on Thanksgiving to come on. And I really, really thank you for that. Bob, what we've yeah. seen, what we've seen... And I'll come to this specific poll in a moment. But across, yes. all the, across all the polling companies, we have seen, and I think really it was the Afghanistan withdrawal above all that began it, what we've seen are Biden's personal poll ratings slipping consistently with no sign of a bounce. I, I know you're a Democrat. I know you want your man to do well. But objectively, just how much trouble is he in? The elections are a year away, and as any president in the White House knows, that as soon as you get in, you, uh, the wear and tear, and you start losing. I mean, President uh, Bush Jr. in 2002 was one of the only fourth president to gain House seats, and that was because of 9-11. President Clinton did it in 98 with all the trouble. So we expect this. Uh, we're going to lose a lot more. Re president Reagan, in his second term, lost the U.S. Senate in 86, and he was very popular. The American voters... Um, are a lot like uh, uh, sports teams. You're with your team and they lose a game, you want the coach or manager thrown out. So we got trouble, uh, but it's a long way. And we, got, we, the Democrats, got to produce in the Congress and get that out of the way and start talking to the American people. Yeah, I mean, I get the point, Bob, about midterm blues, and that affects a lot of governments across the Western world. Of course, it does. It's just that this is, you know, we're not even a year in, was really the point that I was making. And, yeah, and I know there are pressures. I know it's not easy. What about this particular poll? Um, and it's been written up in Newsweek, suggesting that if it was Trump v. Biden, that Trump is now well ahead, you know, double digits ahead in some of those states that were decided by tens of thousands of votes either way. Is Donald Trump storming back to popularity? Well, Donald Trump was defeated, as you know. He was your candidate. The American people uh, defeated them. Uh, so we'll see. I, I don't think Trump, uh, I think Trump will ultimately be indicted for tax fraud. But Trump is involved and he's raising money. He's helping a lot of candidates. Some of his candidates don't win. Uh, we'll have the 22 elections and most likely the Democrats won't prevail unless there's a big issue. Uh, but 2024, then the American people will have to decide and obviously both sides, Democrats and Republicans, will have primaries that go on and on and yeah, on. Yeah. And then uh, we'll see in the general election of 2024. OK, so it, in conclusion, Bob, you're not panicked by these polls. No, no, I served in Vietnam. I'm not panicked in politics. It's <laughs> a very good answer. And thank you for joining us. And please enjoy yes. Thanksgiving. Have a great day. And thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nigel. Well, you heard what Bob Mulholland said, but I'm making the point. He's not even a year into the presidency. His poll ratings are tanking. He's lower than Donald Trump was at any point in his presidency. And for the vice president to be much, much lower than that suggests to me something is going wrong. Now, after the break, I'm going to be joined by Bilal Fawaz, somebody who was trafficked as a minor to this country and put into effective slavery. I can't think of a more appropriate conversation given what the criminal gangs are doing across the English Channel right now.
The GB News pub is open, it's Talking Pints, and I'm joined by Bilal Stateless Fawaz. <laughs> now, we'll come to the Stateless bit in a minute. Bilal, your story is very pertinent, I think, to what's going on today. Yes. Because we have criminal gangs mm -hmm. who are trafficking people across the English Channel. Uh, some are paying the money up front, others do it and finish up being indebted. Mm -hmm. And for many that come, who perhaps have this dream that somehow the streets are paved with gold in the UK, <laughs> most of them, many of them, will finish up in the illegal economy. That's right. And effectively in some form of modern-day slavery. And I want you just briefly to share with the audience, you were trafficked here as a child. Yes, I was trafficked here as a child. I had the assumption that I was coming here to see my dad. I was a kid, and when you're a kid, you're gullible. You're yep. open to certain things that shouldn't be happening. And I got... got and this, was, this was from Nigeria? From Nigeria. Yeah. And I came here, and I was kept in a place where I wasn't allowed to go to school. I wasn't allowed to study or do anything. I just couldn't take it. So I was doing all the things that they asked me to do in the house, and I decided to run out, because I have so much passion about my future. I have so much... So what age were you? To. I was 14. I was 14. And just being kept under house arrest, effectively? Yeah. I was supposed to be kept there for a period of time to work and then maybe taken somewhere else. Which you didn't know? I never knew where. But, but you... I knew something was going on. Yeah. So forced labour, basically. Yeah. And that's the fate, isn't it, of many of the people who it come happens. across the English Channel? It happens. Why don't we talk about this? Because it's... It's a very peculiar topic. No one wants to talk about things that people are doing that will shed a bad light to the public or to an organisation. Hence why they put it under wraps. I, I just, I, I find it amazing. I just find this amazing. But <laughs> the, 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 the media, mainstream media, when the subject of modern day slavery comes up, they just sort of look at the floor yes. and pretend it's not happening. You've experienced it. Um, and you, and unsurprisingly, you know, once you'd escaped and were taken into care, yes, you sort of got yourself into a few bits of trouble, didn't you? Of course, I was a yeah. kid. I didn't have a mom. I didn't have a father. I, I was looking for guidance. I was looking for belonging. I, I was looking for certain family. I was still a kid. I was vulnerable, and I saw the British kids in my school. They were hanging around after school. They were relaxing, and they went out on the streets, and they were playing around, jumping on the bus without ID, without, uh, they call it a card, a bus pass by then. I didn't have money to pay for it. I wasn't allowed to work. So I yeah. jumped on the bus, and I, I did some few things that I wasn't allowed. And when the police come, they all gallivanted around. They all ran away. I, I just stood there like... Okay, <laughs> okay, what do you want from me? What do I do? It is interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. you said that in Nigeria, you'd experience real racism. Oh, you have no idea. I am too black to be, I'm too black to be considered white, and I'm too white to be considered black. So when I'm in Nigeria, they say, go back to your country. And that is infuriating, because in my soul and my heart, I... I belong there. I, I, I was brought up there. So I then realised that I'm not from there based on the, yeah. uh, the decision that the Nigerian embassy did. So, but when you came to this country yeah. and you're out gallivanting <laughs> with the British kids... See, this, this, but this interests me because 
Because we're going through this revisionism of our history, where certain elements in British society want to convince us that we're evil, we're awful, we're institutionally <coughs> racist, we're ghastly, we're terrible. What was your experience of coming living you, in this country? Listen, I tell you, this country is not racist, it's not institutionally, whatever you want to call it. What I tell you, this country has a lot of opportunities. And some people that don't have the capacity to approach that opportunity and grab it while they can, they deem this country to be racist. There's so much opportunity. All you've got to do is just have a belief, figure out a point of target, a goal, and then work towards it. Of course, there's going to be obstacles, boundaries along the way, but it's how you tackle it that makes you stronger for the next huddle. You can't just surrender when things get hard because that's what a lot of people do. And then they will say, they're racist. They're not racist. You just need to do things accordingly in a way where people can perceive you as a hard-working individual. And then doors will open. You know, people say I'm lucky. I say I'm not. The harder I work, the luckier I become. Uh, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, listen, I like that. And, and I like that. And I'm glad you do. And, and you got yourself straightened out. And you yeah. decided that you decided that sport was going to be the big thing. Boxing was going to be the big thing. Yeah. And let's just see a quick, quick clip of you in action. Let's, let's, ha let's have a little look. He's fit, this boy. I mean, he's fit. There's that. You want to see my buddy? <laughs> well, we are before. Do you want to see it? We're before the watershed, but I think we could if you want to. I'll show you. I'll show you. Let's go for it. Wow. Look yeah, at I, that. I mean, who at home could... I mean, I can't compete with that, and I'm not going to. Nah, I promise nah, nah, you. Listen, it's all hard work. I'm telling you. It's all hard work. So bo let's do the boxing first. Yeah. So what gets you into boxing? Just just the fact you're good at it, or...? No, nah, the thing is... You're natural? I, I have... I wouldn't try to big myself up, but I have the gift of understanding. I, I, you show me something, I would approach it with caution, I will see how it's being done, and I will inject my intuition into it. So whatever I do, I'm always good at it. Whether it's music, whether it's acting, whether it's modeling, whether it's taking instruction, whether it's helping kids, motivational speaking, personal training, or boxing. I just have that fire inside of me that when people want to quit, I don't quit. I, I, I channel that. So when I get in the ring and I'm hitting the bags, and I get to the point where I want to stop. That is the part that I dig deepest the most. And where does boxing go for you from here? I mean, because one of your problems is you're still... You know, you've been given... 30 I mean, months. I'm going to say, so, you know, State Les, which is your... Artist name. Your, your music. musical name. My musical name. And we'll come on to that in a moment. Yes. But it's because you have been stateless. That's the, that's the whole concept behind it. Yeah. I mean, so you're in a very odd position... Yeah. That Nigeria... Wouldn't want me. Don't want you. Lebanese don't want me. Lebanese, because through parentage, yeah. don't want you. And we, we didn't really want you. And I fought for you. We, <laughs> I, I literally bled for you in the ring. I know. I mean, it's a very bizarre situation. Yeah. So you've now been given leave to remain for, is it 30 months? For 30 months. So, yeah, not indefinite leave to not remain. Not indefinite leave. Just leave to remain. Just leave to remain. And, and it's... It's alarming because that 30 months, when he gets over, I will have to apply for an extension. In the, in, if there was a situation 
or an event that they could deport me to Nigeria or take me to Lebanon, then the 30 months is warranted. But if there's no way for them to deport me, why are they prolonging the inevitable? Because I want to buy a house. I want to build a family. No bank will lend an individual a loan if they know the person has no permanent residency in a country. No, I know. It's a bit of a catch-22. So but, but through the boxing, I mean, you're, you know, you're signed up, you know, you'd be making money. Yeah, I will be. I will be. I'm signed to MTK Global. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for my status in British government. So you couldn't do that without leave to remain? I couldn't fight without leave to right. remain. I've so, never worked. OK, so you've got some bouts ready. Mm-hmm. You, and you, you're going to make some real money. Oh, you have no idea. You're my next opponent. You better get ready. Okay. Nigel, I'm coming for you. <laughs> well, I tell you what. I tell you what. You've got, he's got even more self-confidence than I've got. This oh, but in boxing, I wouldn't take you on at all. So there's a chance now to make some real money and do well. Yeah, yeah there is. But the thing is, um, my river is running dry. I'm not a company that flourishes over time. I'm an organism as you are, as I am, as we all are. So I am diminishing over time. So if I don't accelerate my process or my opportunity right now, I can't deceive myself. I'm 33 years old. Yeah. So have you survived financially then for the last 10 years or so? Have you managed? Um, I could say I help, I motivate kids. I go to kids' house, I talk to them, I train them, personal training, I do boxing. Um, I do like kind of like, talks to young kids and the parents love it because they see their, the, the spirit uplifted. It, it empowers them because if they see that I can do it and I show the kids the way that never surrender when things get hard, just keep going, keep good going. Message. Nothing good comes easy. If it was easy, everyone will have good it. Good message. Now, so boxing, boxing, you're 33. Yes. So you've got five years? Uh, let's say nine years. Okay, whatever. But it's not that long. It's not that but long. Tell us about your musical career. So... I can't speak in boxing. I can only show my talent. But with music, I can speak, I can talk, I can express my emotions. And I've had a love heartbreak, not only in the love part, but also in life. I've also had a lot of education in this part where life has put me through. So I've been a person that has evaded all obstacles and come out Ooh. victorious. You seem to have been through some... Pretty horrendous times. Yeah. So, um, but you've emerged from it with a very positive mental attitude. Who, who, who shouldn't? If you have a calamity or an obstacle or some ev event in your life that is not normal, if you surrender to it, you are surrendering to... But lots, lots of people... You see, the reason I'm asking this is a lot of people today, I think we almost encourage to feel like victims. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, you know, you, 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 you're a victim of this, you're, you're a victim, victim of, of that, that. That's and, it. and we're going to have to... And, and, and I just worry, and there are genuine victims, of course there are. Yes. Like, well, you were one, but, but there are genuine victims in life. But if we keep telling people they're victims, and the state can help, and the state can provide... It resonates with them. It's a, but isn't that just such a negative mindset? It is. Rather than telling people, you know, stand up, fight back, get your exactly. way out. I mean, life is not a, a place where it's easy. Life is unfair. That's why it's fair. You can't just say, oh, I'm a victim to this, I'm a victim to that, because trust me, everyone has problems in their life. Mm. Well, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? that the normal problems that people have growing up, and yours are extreme, but the normal difficulties in life, the normal you know, upsets yes. that people have, then are being encouraged to be thought of 
<laughs> as being some sort of form of mental illness or trauma. <laughs> when in fact they're the knocks and the ups and downs of that's oh what I feel. God. I mean I do you see what I'm do- honestly I, I I I relate with you, I'm telling you. Because that's it. They say mental health, oh he has this, he has that. It's just laziness. Yeah. Yes, maybe a few, a fraction of them might have the mental illness mm. or whatever. Some do. But some, some do, some yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the majority that lean to that side without having that incident presented in their life. It's, yeah. it's just an... We all way. have knocks in life. We all have difficulties. Yeah, I mean... We're running out of time. It's been fascinating talking to you. I could you. talk for a lot longer, but I wanted to, <laughs> I'm going to give you the last word on this. Just tell us. Tell us, how should we feel about our country? How you should feel about a country is proud. Just keep working and keep believing and keep making, making things possible in a way that if anybody that ventures, that want to dig deep to better themselves, that is not playing the victim, can actually make an opportunity of themselves. Just don't surrender and give the opportunity there and then let them work for it. That was Bilal, stateless. And I think that was one of the most uplifting and positive talking pints we've ever done. Okay, we've got a few minutes left for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in, and I do not get any sight of them until right now. Philip asks me, do you support offshore processing? If yes, where? So, back in 2003 to 5, the Conservatives in opposition looked at this. The idea was if people illegally came to Britain, they'd be sent to the Ascension Islands, which is a heck of a long way away, and they'd be processed there. The Australians also tried this on a couple of islands. I think the problem with that is you will inevitably... Uh, fine, if you herd large numbers of people in offshore processing centres, there'll be all sorts of abuse, all sorts of allegations of, of, of misbehaviour. It'll cost a fortune, and I'm not sure it'll solve anything. The real problem we've got here is the majority, near, well, nearly all of those that are coming illegally across the channel don't have identity documents. So if you flew them to the Ascension Islands and you found they didn't qualify as refugees at all, where would you send them then? And that's why I think a returns policy to France is the only way we can do this. That's not to say that we couldn't, in northern France, have a place where people could come and apply to be genuine refugees to Britain. We've always been open to genuine refugees. We've got a prouder record of, on, on this than any other European country. But I think at the moment what's happening, and I'm going to ask Bill out on this, you know, the majority, 90% of those that come are young men, they're economic migrants. And we might understand why they want to come to Britain, but we've got to do something better, haven't we? I mean, yes, you have to have a strategic plan in, the, in, in, in a place where when they come, that they are being looked after in a way where they feel like they're not being neglected and cast aside. I mean, I was watching the news today mm-hmm. and three kids and a pregnant woman. It's horrible. Oh, my goodness. No, it's horrible. What a lot. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That hurts me. So it's horrible. The thing is, a lot of people just, they, they venture out without having a point, without having a plan. They think that by going out to get somewhere like an English channel, yeah. they think that by getting there, that's it, their life is blessed. Well, we have to have a sensible immigration policy, don't we? Yes, you have to. It's got to be, be controlled. Yes. I'm going to do one more. 
Clive asks, would Trump do a better job than Pretty Patel? Almost anybody would do a better job than Pretty Patel. I'm certain of that. Neil asks, I'll do one more. You were known as our British bulldog and Anne Whittacombe as our courageous Jack Russells. What canine pooch would you associate with Ursula von der Leyen and Guy Verhofstadt? Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I wouldn't want to insult any breed of dog by allying them to those appalling people in Brussels. They're ghastly. We're finished. I'm gone. It's over. I'm back next Monday.